What do you do when you encounter an obstacle in your life? You come across some insurmountable difficulty and you feel like there's no way that I can get past this. I can't see how I could ever get over this difficulty. What do you do? Well, I've got an answer for you today, actually. Right at the beginning of the sermon, first off, I've got the answer for you. Just believe in yourself. Just dig deep down inside and believe in yourself and you can do anything. How does that sound? Hopefully, to you, that doesn't sound very good. And yet, that idea is prevalent in the culture around us. We, we like this idea of just believing in myself. As you watch movies or read books, stories, that's a common theme. The hero gets towards the end of the story, and they've got some big you know, task to overcome, some big bad guy to defeat, and, and they doubt themselves. They don't know if they can do it, and then the moment comes, and they reach down deep inside. They believe in themselves, and they overcome, and they do it. And, and we like this idea, and we like it because it means I can rely on myself, Any task or any difficulty comes up in my life, and ultimately, I know that I can believe in myself and I can get over it. There's some big problems with that thinking, though, and one of those problems is that when I believe in myself, I tend to live for myself. When I believe in myself, I tend to live for myself. Like I was talking about with the kids, faith leads to action. Our actions come out of our beliefs. And so if, I, if I'm believing in myself, I'm going to do the things that are good for myself. And this just relates to our sinful nature. Sin is selfish at its core. And so when we, our, our, our natural instinct is to preserve ourselves, to take care of ourselves, to live for ourselves. By believing in ourselves. And yet, is there a better way to live than that? And hopefully all of us in here, we know, yes, there's a better way to live. According to God's word, we are called to live differently. So what does that new life look like? We're going to be in Luke chapter 17 today. If you're using the church Bible in front of you, this is going to be on page 876. And as you look through Luke 17, there's five different sections. And initially, it kind of feels like, what do these have to do with each other? But as I really dug into the list, this the last couple weeks, I saw a unifying theme overall of what's going on here, and that's what I want to show you this morning. This first introduction, the first four verses that we see here actually raise, a, raise an issue. They speak against what we just talked about with believing in ourselves. So let's read verses 1 through 4 of Luke chapter 17. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So right in this beginning part, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's sharing with them how to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus, how to live that out. And he gives two clear commands. The first command is don't tempt others to sin. Temptation's going to come. Temptations are sure to come. But don't be the one through whom they come. Don't be the cause of someone else to sin. Then the second one is about forgiveness. Whenever somebody repents, we are to forgive them. And he, he lays out the whole process as well. You see your brother sinning, which indicates we're talking about other believers here. You see your brother sinning, you should call them out on it. You should rebuke them. And then if they repent, you forgive them. But then Jesus 
raises it up a notch, doesn't he? Or, or maybe seven notches. Not just one time are you to forgive them, but seven times in one day. If they keep coming back to you, they keep sinning, they keep repenting, you must forgive them each time. Now, how do you feel about these two commands? Pretty easy, no problem. That's how I live every day. That's how I do it every day. Or do you feel like, actually, that sounds pretty difficult to live that way? This first one, don't tempt others to sin. I mean, this is a whole other category for sin. Like, it's not just watching out for myself, trying to keep myself from sin, but now I actually have to watch out and how my actions affect other people. That's difficult. And look what Jesus says about it. He says it would be better, it would be preferable to drown horribly in the ocean rather than cause someone else to sin. I want you to think about this for a minute. Given the choice, you have two options. Would you rather cause someone else to sin or drown violently at the bottom of the ocean? You should pick the second one. That would be better. Do you really believe that? That's hard. That's a hard teaching from Jesus. What about the second one here? Forgiving. We like forgiveness for ourselves. And, and a lot of times we are willing to forgive someone, but seven times in a day? Like, come on, buddy, get your life together. You know, isn't there a point where we just go, you know what, I can't do this again. You, you know what, I can't forgive you again for doing this. And yet Jesus says you must forgive them. And, and a little hint here, it's not seven times. It's not on the eighth time you can let them go. It's every time. Every time we are to forgive them. If right now you're feeling like, yeah, that actually does sound pretty difficult to live that way, you're in good company because it seems like the disciples felt that way as well. We see their response in verse 5. They say, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. What do you think about that response? There's a, there's a couple good things about it. The first thing is that they seem, to, they seem to realize they can't do it on their own. We can't hope to do these things on our own. We need faith. And so they're trusting in Jesus. They're not trying to do it on their own. That's good. And the second thing that's good about it is that they see the connection between faith and obedience. That what we do flows out of what we believe. They're recognizing that. If I, if I'm, if I can hope to obey these commands, I, it, I have to change what I believe. I have to have greater faith. And this seems like they're on the right track. It seems like the right response. And yet, look at how Jesus responds to them now. Jesus says, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. That's kind of a weird response for Jesus to give. And on the surface, how do we usually take this? Usually, we read that and we think, okay, yeah, if I had more faith, I could do miraculous things. If I just had a little bit more faith, I could do these wonderful, miraculous things. And I remember reading this as a kid, reading that one. And in Matthew 17, there's a parallel passage where Jesus says, if you had faith of the grain of a mustard seed, you could tell this mountain to move and it would move. Faith that can move mountains. We're familiar with that. So as I was a kid, I remember hearing this and going, wow, like that would be amazing. Like, if someday I got to that point where I had the faith that could move, where I could literally tell a mountain to move and it would move, that would be amazing. And yet, if we're being honest, did I ever really believe that I would have that much faith? Did I ever really believe that I could move mountains with my faith? If I'm being honest, no. I never believed that I would have that much faith. But wait, pause. 
How much faith are we talking about here? I keep saying that much faith, but what does Jesus say? The faith, like a grain of mustard seed? Mustard seed is a very small seed. Hyperbolically, we're talking about the smallest amount of faith here. We're talking about the minimum amount of faith. Jesus isn't saying if you had more faith, you could do this. Jesus is saying if you guys had any faith at all, you could tell this tree that has an extensive root system that's very difficult to pull up, you could just tell it to uproot itself and it would throw itself in the sea. But what's going on here? Does that mean that they don't have any faith at all? And and how come none of us are moving mountains with our faith? How come none of us are pulling up trees with our faith? Does that mean that we don't have any faith at all? What Jesus is really doing here, he's he's not agreeing with them that they need more faith. He's saying, you guys don't understand genuine faith in the first place. He's pointing out that they don't know what real faith is at all. You see, we have this idea of abstract faith, ambiguous faith. Like, faith is just this something inside of me. I don't really understand it, but it's something inside of me, and I need more of it in order to follow God. I imagine it like I've got a measuring cup in my chest that says Ryan's faith on it, and Jesus pours blue liquid down my throat, and it fills up the measuring cup, and miraculously, magically, I have more faith, and now I can follow God. But what does that even mean? We like the idea of ambiguous faith, but we don't really know what it means. And then we don't know how how do we actually increase our faith? How does God actually increase our faith? Well, there's no coincidence that Jesus then goes into the next three passages that we see. A couple teachings and a story about Jesus. They're going to tell us what genuine faith really is. And it'll also clue us into how to increase our faith to be able to follow Jesus better. So let's look at this first one. We're in... Luke 17, this is verses 7 through 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants who have only done what was our duty. This is kind of a weird teaching from Jesus. And especially in our current cultural context, we have some issues with it. It makes us a little bit uncomfortable. The whole master-slave thing sometimes feels uncomfortable. And it's, it's important to remind us that this is not the slavery of early America. This is a bond servant. It's, it's very different than the slavery that was happening in early Americas. But the other thing that we feel uncomfortable about is the seeming ingratitude of the master. Like, come on, man, you can't even say thank you to the servants. Like, it's not that hard. He should at least say thank you at the end of the day, and and that kind of makes us feel uncomfortable. And yet, we're missing the point when we do that. What we actually, the best way to learn about the master, who the master is in this passage, is to look at the response from the servants at the very end. How do they actually respond to the master, and what does that tell us about him? Well, so... Let's break this down a little bit. That'll help us to understand it. What would it take for you to work like this servant is working? Work hard all day, out in the field, doing hard physical labor, and then you come in, and, you know, it'd be nice if dinner was on the table. You could put your feet up, have dinner. It'd be nice, but nope. You've got to get out of those clothes, put on other work clothes, and now you've got to make dinner for the master. And then finally, once the master's done eating dinner, you can eat dinner yourself, And by that time, it's time to go to bed. 
You go to sleep, you wake up, and you do it all again the next day. What would it take for you to actually live that way? Would you need um, some sort of, or maybe if you were getting paid really well. If you had a really good paycheck from this job, you might be willing to work that hard. Or, or maybe if there was some sort of future reward, you knew that in the end you were going to get everything that the master owned, you had some inheritance coming, you knew that in the end it was all going to be worth it, maybe then you would be willing to work that hard. Or, or maybe, and this is a stretch, maybe if you, you knew that master and you really liked them, and, and you knew that they really appreciated the work that you did, and at the end of the day they would say thank you, they would say I appreciate this so much, maybe that would be enough for you to do that hard work every day. That one's kind of a stretch, though. You know, it's kind of funny. I was working through this, and I was having some trouble, so um, I, I was talking to my wife, Jill, about it, and just trying to process through all of it, trying to figure it out. And um, as I was, I was, and actually, she was a great help. She helped me see the three aspects of faith that we're going through in this passage. But as I was working through this part of it, and I was describing the work that this servant was doing, and I'm looking into my wife's eyes as I'm describing this work, I thought, you know what? This sounds a lot like her job as a stay-at-home mom. She works hard all day, maybe not outside doing physical labor, but there's still physical, you know, she's carrying kids around, doing all that kind of stuff. And then the end of the day, it comes time for dinner, and she's usually the one making dinner. I, I do try to help her sometimes, okay? I'm not a totally bad husband. But she's still often the one making dinner. And at the end of all of that, does anyone thank her for it? Okay, once again, I, I do thank my wife, okay? I'm not that bad. But you get the point that I'm making. She works hard all day, and she's not getting paid for it. There's no promise of future reward. There's no thanks at the end. It sounded kind of similar. And actually, it brought up a good conversation for us. Who is her master? Are the kids her master? That's not going to go over very well. Am I her master? That's not politically correct. But even then, that's not going to work out well. If she's doing all of this for me, that's not, that's not enough. Ultimately, there's only one person that she can serve in this way, day in and day out, raising kids, being home with them, and it's Christ. If she's doing this all for him and for his glory, then it's worth it. Anything else, it's not going to be worth it. And that's the same perspective that these servants have. I mean, I want you to think about this. How can they possibly work that hard day in and day out for no pay, no reward, no thanks even at the end of the day, and yet still say, we are unworthy servants who have only done what was our duty? This shows us that these servants have an incredible amount of faith in who their master is. They know who their master is, and he is worthy to be served even if they don't get anything out of it for themselves. And so this first passage here tells us something about genuine faith. Genuine faith is faith in who God is. Faith in who God is. Now we go to the second one here, verses 11 through 19, the story of the ten lepers. Let's read it. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village, and he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when they saw, when, 
when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So we've got these ten lepers who are suffering from a terminal contagious skin disease. And because of that, they have been exiled out of society. They have been quarantined from the cities, living out there in this camp alone to die there, basically. And it's important to see, there's a few things to pay attention to in their initial um, request of Jesus. They say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So the first one there, Jesus, it tells us they know something of who Jesus is. They've heard about him, and so they call him by name. They know something of who Jesus is. The second one there is they call him master. They even recognize something deeper, not just his name, but they know something really of who he is, that he is the master, the Lord. And then the third one is they say, have mercy on us. This request that they're giving, they recognize they are not worthy. They don't deserve to be healed. They're asking for unmerited favor. They're asking for Jesus' mercy on them to heal them, even if they don't deserve it. Now, actually, this request sounds a lot like these these servants that we just heard about, the unworthy servants. But this tells us that all ten of these lepers had faith in who Jesus is. They knew something of who Jesus is, who Jesus was, and they had faith in who he is to make this request in the first place. So they ask him that. Jesus then says, show yourselves to the priests. This is um, the common prescription from the law of what they were supposed to do. It was rare to be healed of leprosy, but if you were, you were supposed to go and show yourself to the priests, and he would look you over, check you out, and he would give you a clean bill of health, verify that you actually were healed, and then he would give you permission to re-enter society. And so they, they obey. They go to the priests. They're heading towards the priests, and it says that while they're on their way, they were cleansed. As they went, they were cleansed. And we see that one of them, when he sees that he's cleansed, he immediately turns and he runs back to Jesus. And he falls at his feet, says two things. He praises God and then he thanks Jesus. And it makes a note here that he's a Samaritan. And what we understand out of that is he's the unlikely one. The Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. Out of all of the ten lepers to come back and praise God and give thanks to Jesus, he's the unlikely one to do that because he was a Samaritan. And yet he does. And Jesus says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now this brings up a question for us. What is the difference between the nine and the one? What is the difference between the nine lepers that didn't turn back to praise God and the one that did? And a lot of people, when they're reading this, we we often go to this idea of gratitude. He was thankful while the the other nine despised it. They weren't thankful. And yet... I don't know if that's the right interpretation for this. I mean, number one, it's kind of hard to believe that they wouldn't be thankful for this. you got to imagine that once they went to the priest, verified that they actually were healed, they were cleansed, that they would give praise to God, and they would, you know, seek out to maybe even try to find Jesus and thank him for it. But there's actually a better reason why I don't think that's the case. Because Jesus, he doesn't point out the thankfulness. What Jesus draws attention to when he comes back, he says was no one found to return and, praise, and give praise to God except this foreigner. 
He draws attention to the glorifying God, praising God for what he has done. See, the other nine, they hadn't seen. I mean, they could kind of see that they were cleansed, but they hadn't verified it yet. They needed proof that they had been healed before they would praise God for it. They needed to go check out by the priest, let him verify it, let him prove that we are actually healed, then I will praise God for it. And yet this one, this Samaritan, he didn't need that. He couldn't see, I mean, he could see that his skin was clearing up, he could see that he was cleansed, but he didn't have verification of it yet, and and he could still, he had faith in what God had done, that Jesus had healed him, that he had done what he had said. And this is actually something of the situation that we're in. We believe in who God is, and we believe in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. I don't have proof of that, though. Now, don't get me wrong, the Spirit testifies to us that we are children of God, so there is, there is that testimony of the Spirit in my life. And I can see the new life that I have in Christ, in this life that is not mine, but he is, he is living through me. And yet, I don't have verification. I don't have proof that I actually have been saved and been forgiven. That won't come until I stand before the great white throne and I see my name written in the Lamb's book of life. Then I will know for certain, not by faith, but by sight, that I have been saved. But right now, I live by faith. And my faith is in what God has done through Jesus' death on the cross for my sins. And that's the faith that the one leper had. He didn't need proof. He had faith that that Jesus, in what Jesus had done, that he had healed him. So this is, that's the second thing we learn about genuine faith this morning. The first was we have faith in who God is, and the second is that genuine faith is faith in what God has done or in what Christ has done. And now we get to the third one. This next section is pretty long. We're not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read the first two verses and then kind of talk through the rest of it. So verses 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Pharisees, they come to Jesus, they're asking him about the kingdom, and the first thing that he says to them is the kingdom of God is coming in ways that cannot be observed. What does that make you think of? Actually, This was something I was supposed to say earlier. It's important that we actually define faith. What do we mean, what are we talking about with faith here? Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's stronger than hope. It's not just hoping for the best. We actually have assurance in what we hope for. And it's a conviction of what we can't yet see. When we can't see, that's when we need faith. So what is Jesus saying about the kingdom right here? It can't be observed, which means to understand the the coming kingdom of God, we need faith. He continues with that idea as he says, you you can't say, look, here it is or there it is. And he actually says, it's in the midst of you, but you still don't see it. And he turns from the Pharisees and he continues on this theme with the disciples. He tells them some important things to understand about the kingdom. What he tells them is kind of a, a timeline, of both what's going to happen in the near future and what's going to happen in the far future related to God's kingdom. So that first thing, um, so it, it's by faith, we can't see it. And, um, and yet, and it's here, but it, there's an aspect of it that's here right now, that's with Jesus. Jesus is the king, he is bringing the kingdom, and yet 
he will suffer and he will be persecuted and he will be rejected by this generation. And we understand that as being his death, his resurrection, as his, and his ascension. He's going to be leaving again. But there's a promise of his coming back a second time. And yet, as he talks about this with the disciples, he says, you're going to want to see me come back, but there's two things you need to know about my return. And the first one is that when Jesus comes back, everyone's going to know it. He says, it's going to be like lightning that flashes across the sky. Everyone's going to know that I'm back. So if anyone ever comes to you and says, hey, did you know that Jesus came back? He's actually living in my basement. It's true. Don't believe him. It's not true. When he comes back, everyone will know it. It won't be by faith, it will be by sight. But until then, it's by faith. The other thing he talks about here is that people are going to be living everyday life. It's going to be like just living normal everyday life when Jesus comes back. And he cites two examples here. The first one is Noah. That in the days of Noah, people were just living normal everyday life and then suddenly judgment came upon them in the flood. The other example is Sodom and Gomorrah. People were living everyday life in Sodom and Gomorrah, and then God's judgment came and destroyed them. That's the way that God's kingdom is going to come. And the whole point here is that you're not going to see it coming. And, And sometimes we often think we will. We think about the signs and, you know, okay, I'm going to know about the time that Jesus is going to come, and yet what Jesus is saying here is no, you won't know, because it's by faith and not by sight. We have faith In God's coming kingdom. It takes faith to understand the kingdom of God. And this is not what the Pharisees were expecting. You see, the Pharisees' idea of the kingdom was a kingdom that they would bring through their own good works. And it would be a kingdom of their liking. A kingdom that they would actually get to help rule. Sure, there's a Messiah king that would come. But they they would be established as, as rulers with him. And it would be the kingdom that they wanted. And yet Jesus is saying, no. This is not a kingdom that you can see This is a kingdom that it takes faith to understand. But what kind of faith? We're trying to be specific. We're trying to understand what real faith really is. So what kind of faith does it take to understand the kingdom of God? Well, look at verse 33. He says, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. This goes directly against our natural sinful instinct to live for ourselves. On our own, Without faith, the way that we will live is for ourselves to preserve ourselves. That's the natural instinct, right? I need, I need to take care of myself. I can't give myself away. And yet what this is saying is no. Whoever, whoever's trying to protect themselves, whoever's trying to preserve themselves, is going to lose their life. But it's the one who can actually give up their life that will keep it. What kind of faith does it take to be able to do that? It's a faith in what God will do. You see, we have faith in who God is, we have faith in what God has done, and we have faith in what God will do, which is trusting in his promises, what he has said he will do. And when we have faith in what God will do, when we have faith in what Christ will do, that he will come back again and he will make everything new, I'm not concerned about my life now. I will freely give my life away, even if that means dying for the sake of others or for the sake of Christ, because I know that when Jesus comes back, he will raise me up again and I will be with him for eternity. That's faith. It's faith in what God will do. Luke chapter 17 tells us what genuine faith really is. It's a faith in who Jesus is. It's a faith in what Jesus has done, and it's a faith in what Jesus will do in his promises. And one of the big ones is that he is coming back again. 
As we talk about this, though, now I want to go back to the beginning. Because the beginning is what raised this question of what genuine faith really is. And so how does that understanding of faith, faith in who God is, faith in what he has done, and faith in what he will do, how does that answer the disciples' misunderstanding of faith? You see, this this idea of abstract faith, where I just magically get more faith from God and then I can do what he called me to do, that's hard to understand and it doesn't really go anywhere with us. But there's a better way for us to understand faith. And that, and that is that faith has an object. You see, if faith is something in me, then the object of my faith is myself. I will believe in myself, and we've seen the problems that come when that's my only faith is in myself. But what should the object of our faith be? See, we, the question isn't, do you have faith? The question is, what is your faith in, or rather, whom is your faith in? The object of our faith should be God in all of his promises. That is the object of our faith. I don't have faith in myself. I have faith in God and who God is and what he's done and in what he will do. So then that brings up the question, how do I increase my faith? That's still a good thing. I want more faith, but how do I increase it? It's not wrong to ask for it, but it's kind of a misunderstanding. You see, I increase my faith when I increase the understanding of the object of my faith. When I know the object of my faith better, my faith grows. When I know more of who God is, more of what he has done, and more of what he will do, my faith grows. My faith increases because I know the object of my faith more. And that enables me, that motivates me to live according to his word in ways that I could never do if I didn't have faith and was only living for myself. And that's what the disciples missed. They didn't just need Jesus to magically give them more faith. They needed to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of their faith. They needed to know more of who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he will do. And that's what would enable them to actually live this out. And I want to be clear here, I'm not talking about doing this on our own. We don't take the Holy Spirit out of this. The Holy Spirit is a part of this. In fact, one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is to reveal God to us. Who knows, the spirit of some, who knows someone except the spirit of that person? Who knows God except the Holy Spirit? He is the one who reveals God to us through his word, and that is how our faith is increased, and we can live new life in him. But it's only when we know him more, when we know the object of our faith more. So let's put this to practice. Let's go back to those two commands and think about how does faith in who God is, what he's done, and what he will do impact my ability to follow those two commands? The first one, don't tempt others. Don't cause others to sin. Don't be a source of temptation. How can I possibly hope to do that? Well, I need faith. And we start with faith in who God is. When I know, when I believe who God really is, I remember that God is holy and just, that he's all-powerful, all-knowing, that he is glorious and majestic. And the better picture I have of who God really is, why would I ever want to sin against him? And then especially, why would I ever want to encourage someone else to sin against him? When I'm, when I'm, when I'm tempting others to sin, I'm starting a mutiny with other people against God. Why would I ever want to do that if that's really who God is? That's faith in who God is. We have faith in what God has done. Now, God has done a lot, more than even what can fit in the Bible. And yet, one of the most important things that God has done has sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. 
And when I remember, when I have faith in what God has done for me, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and all my sins have been forgiven, I don't want to encourage others to sin against God, to trample underfoot the Son of God through their sin. No. My desires are changed. I want to glorify God and I want to encourage others to glorify God as well. What about my faith in what God will do in his promises? I have faith that Jesus is coming back again one day. I have faith that I have a secure future in Christ. And when I have a secure future in Christ, I know that I can start to live in that new life even now. I know the way of life. I know the right path, the right way to live because of the grace of God. And because of that, why would I want to lead someone astray? Imagine you're out hiking on a trail and you know the right way. You know the way that the trail goes, the right path to follow. And you come across someone who's at a crossroads and they don't know which way to go. Are you going to say, yeah, why don't you go that way? No. You would tell them the right way to go. You have the words of life. You have the way of life. We want to tell them that rather than leading them astray, rather than causing them to sin. When I have faith in who God is, what he has done, and what he will do, I no longer have the desire to tempt others to sin. I want to help others to glorify God with their lives. Okay, what about the second command? Forgive repeatedly. As many times as someone sins against you, another believer in Christ sins against you and they repent, we forgive them every single time. That's hard. I need faith. I need faith in who God is. One of the understandings we have of who God is, one of his attributes is that he's just. He has perfect justice. And when I remember, when I have faith in God's justice, I know that I don't have to, I don't have to be the judge. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. I don't have to bring vengeance. I don't have to deal with justice. God, I can trust that with God. It doesn't mean we throw out the justice system in our society, but on a personal level, I don't need vengeance. I don't need justice. God is the one who will get justice. And I have faith in a just God. Actually, there's another aspect of this as well. When I repeatedly have to forgive someone, I learn something more of what God experiences with me when he has forgiven me time and time again. Faith in who God is, We also have faith in what God has done, and this just adds to it. Once again, going to Jesus on the cross. Jesus has died on the cross for my sins, and we're talking about a fellow believer here, because that's what it mentions here. We're forgiving a fellow believer. And so that means that Jesus has also died on the cross for their sins. And can you imagine that? Saying, I know Jesus has died on the cross for your sins. I know God has forgiven you, but I'm just not there yet. You know, I've got a little bit higher standard than God. And so it's going to take a little more for me to forgive you. That would be ridiculous. We would never say that. If God has forgiven them for that sin, how can I not forgive them? And actually, even more so, if God has forgiven me for all that I have done against him, how can I not forgive others when they sin against me? And that's faith in what God has done, that he has forgiven us for our sins. And the last one, faith in what God will do. Once again, we have a confident assurance in our future. We are secure in Christ and our eternal life in him. And so because of that, it's okay if I get taken advantage of now. It's okay that I give freely a forgiveness because it will never run out. I have an abundance. It's okay if I give myself for others and forgive them. 
because I know I have a secure future in Christ. And when I remember that, I'm much more generous. I'm much less stingy when I remember what God will do, what he's promised in the future. And this applies to every area of my life, not just those two areas of struggle, not just those two commands, but every area of my life. When I'm struggling with anxiety, it's a faith issue ultimately. I'm not believing something about God. And I need to remind myself of who God is, of what God has done, and what God will do. That is the true answer to my anxiety. With other struggles and sin as well. Sexual temptation, greed, pride, whatever thing you're dealing with in your life right now, the answer comes in faith in Jesus. Who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus will do. But there's one more thing I want to mention here. Because you can say, yeah, Ryan, I get all of that, and yet I still struggle with sin, so what is the deal? Part of the issue that comes up is our feelings. We know we believe these things, but when the moment of temptation comes, I don't feel like I really believe it, and I give in to sin. And so what are we supposed to do with those feelings? Well, I was talking with somebody. We have a pilot in our small group. And I was talking uh, with her this last week. She probably wouldn't uh, be identified as a pilot, but she is one. And she's doing some special training right now, learning how to fly through clouds. Did you know that you actually need special training to learn how to fly through clouds? Because when, you're, when, you're not, when there's no clouds around, you can see, and you can fly, you can use your senses in your flying, and you can fly pretty well based off of that. You can see where you're going, you can trust your senses, and it works out. But what happens when there's clouds? You can't see. You're actually flying by faith. But what's your faith in? If your faith is in your feelings, in your senses, you're going to crash and burn. You can't see the right way. You might be going up, you might be going down, and you're not going to be able to tell because you can't see where you're going. So what do you need to have faith in? Your instruments. They objectively tell you what is actually going on. If you're going to trust in yourself, if you're going to believe in yourself and your feelings, you're going to crash. But if you trust in the objective instruments, you won't. We, we walk by faith and not by sight. We cannot see God. We cannot see what's going, hap, going to happen in the future, and so we walk by faith. We cannot see what's coming up. And if we're trusting in ourselves, if we're trusting in how we feel in the moment, we're going to crash and burn. But if instead we look at our instruments, and what are our instruments? the living word of God that tells us what is true, that tells us who God is, what God has done, and what God will do. And that's what genuine faith really is. It's faith in who Jesus is, faith in what Jesus has done, and faith in what Jesus will do. And when we believe that, our lives will never be the same. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in faith, Lord, and we, we do pray that you would increase our faith. Lord, we pray that you would give us an, a better understanding of what faith really is. That it's not just some abstract idea that you give us more of, Lord, but that it is faith in you. That it has an object that we believe in you, in who you are, in what you've done, and in what you will do. And Lord, I pray for all of us in here today, that you would help us to know, your, know you more through your word, that it would increase our faith, 
that when we face these obstacles and these difficulties and these struggles in our lives, God, that you would show us more of who you are through your Holy Spirit. You would guide us in your word to understand who you are, what you've done, and what you will do. And Lord, I pray that that would help us to then live our lives for you and to recognize that all of this comes from faith, that obedience doesn't lead to faith, but faith leads to obedience, that we are secure in you because of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, and now we live a new life in you by faith. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Amen.